Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Good morning and welcome everyone to PerfWeb 83, day one. Uh, these are scheduled as fireside chats. Uh, we're going to do one lecture actually with discussion and then a uh, fireside chat with uh, Justin Kendrick, Senior VP and CEO Methodist, I mean, sorry, Memorial Hermann, the Woodlands Hospital. Good Lord. Sorry about that. Uh, fortunately, I don't think he's watching just yet, so I really messed that up. Um, so let me get through our, our quick uh, notes, please. Contact us uh, at contact at perfusioneducation.com. You can see it down there on the scroll bar. Our call-in number is 832-239-5358. And let me repeat that for those of you that might be driving. 832 239 5358. If you look down at our scroll bar, we will be scrolling our social media, for example, our Facebook, uh, where we would appreciate you liking us uh, and sharing us also on Twitter. Uh, we have the YouTube channel. It would be very uh, beneficial for us for you to become a subscriber and to click that notification button. Uh, would appreciate that. Um, so take a look at our scroll bar. It's got all of the appropriate information that you need. I'd like to briefly discuss our MediWeb app, our uh, critical care and uh, application for perfusionists. It has everything you would need it for doing your cases. Uh, it's got a perfusion quick calc section. It's got ECMO section, hemodynamics, conversions, and an IV uh, dose rate calculator. Uh, that's also a standalone app. This app is $2.99. The other app is 99 cents. We've recently done some updates. I think we have some new updates coming. Uh, once you buy it, you get the updates for free. So there's no subscription fees. It's $2.99. I think it's a great value. We really worked hard on it and we're gonna continue to develop that. Uh, you can listen to our PerfWeb podcasts on any of your streaming, uh, your favorite streaming software like Spotify or Podbean or uh, there's a variety of other ones, I believe, on the uh, Apple uh, iTunes as well. Uh, so please listen to our podcasts, uh, social media app. Uh, and by the way, we're going to be airing. I think we're going to are we going to be airing live comments today? So anyone uh, watching that, uh, and is it only YouTube or is it anything? So only on YouTube. So only the YouTube viewers, if you wanna make comments, as you make those comments, I will see them live uh, and try to respond to them uh, more quickly than what we have in the past. And others can see your comments as well without me having to necessarily uh, say it out loud. Our social media uh, app pop-up, uh, I guess we can try that. Oh, that's the live comments, right. We can show you how that works. Well, we don't have to show everybody how that works. Let's just go ahead and get into this. So our first, there it is right there. So our, uh, our first session today is going to be on perfusion accidents. So let's go ahead and start with my slides. So uh, here's my title slide. Of course, I'm Joe Basha, perfusionist, been a perfusionist now for 43 years, um, still practicing, not, don't do as many cases as I 
used to do, but I still do cases, cover ECMO, initiate ECMO, change ECMO circuits. So I'm still active clinically uh, to uh, maintain my certification and my state license. Uh, in time, I, I imagine that will slow down, but it hasn't yet. So I still wanna keep that going if I can. But I wanna talk about perfusion accidents because there are, you know, we've heard several talks about this and there are near misses, there are things that happened uh, that were inconsequential and there are things that happened that were very consequential. The, uh, uh, the uh, cases that I'm going to be discussing with you today actually resulted in a patient death, uh, either because of brain death or because of just death in general, but not one that was protracted, it was fairly immediate. So before we get into that, I wanted to talk about what is the word accident? And you know, the whole sort of theme of my lecture today is going to be on us calling these things perfusion accidents. And I think it's important to mention that uh, some years ago, not terrible, not too many, but several years ago, um, David Wood of the Wood, uh, Woods Insurance Group out of Phoenix, uh, which is now NFP, and they're you know the, one of the largest, if not the largest, perfusion uh, private practice insurance uh, providers in the country uh, that I'm aware of. And uh, we've been a customer of theirs for a very long time. And David gave a, he's the broker, and he gave a presentation uh, at the New Orleans conference. And he was talking about perfusion accidents. One of the questions that he asked the audience was, what, um, it, what is significant about the case when a perfusionist is sued for malpractice? What is the significance of the event that occurred and the lawsuit. And people had a variety of different comments, but what he wanted to illustrate is, it's when there's a, when there's a perfusion accident, especially resulting in death, it's usually, if not always, the last case that that perfusionist ever does. And uh, I thought that was very significant, but getting back into this, I need to take my glasses up to read this. Um, definition of an accident. Well, it's an unforeseen and unplanned event or circumstance. Their meeting was an accident, sort of by chance. Lack of intention or necessity, chance. They met by accident rather than by, by design. An unfortunate event resulting especially from carelessness or ignorance was involved in a traffic accident. Now, for those of you who don't know me very well, I was a police officer at one time, and we didn't call them traffic accidents. We called them traffic collisions. We never used the term traffic accident because they were collisions, not accidents. There was always a reason. Um, in the medical lexicon, an unexpected and medically important bodily event, especially when injurious, for example, a cerebrovascular accident, a CVA. In law, it's an unexpected happening causing loss or injury, which is not due 
to any fault or misconduct on the part of the person injured, but for which legal relief may be sought. And informally in the United States, uh, used euphemistically to refer to an uncontrolled or involuntary act or instance of, for example, urinating or defecating as by a baby or a pet. The puppy had an accident on the rug. Uh, and a non-essential property or quality of an entity or circumstance. For example, the accident of nationality. I was born in the United States, not because I chose to be, it just happened that way. That's where my parents were, where my mother was when I was born. So I was, I guess in this sense, accidentally born in the United States. Other people are accidentally born wherever they were actually born. So I, my mother had traveled, had she traveled at the time of my birth, I may very well have been born anywhere on the globe for, for you know, for, for that matter, right? So what is the, the, the origin of this word we use, accident? Well, it originates from the late 14th century common era or uh, AD, an occurrence, an incident, event, what comes by chance. So I don't wanna go into too much detail on this. It's, it comes from the online etymology dictionary. I thought it was somewhat interesting, but you know, you go back and it actually goes all the way to the 1200s. The sense has had a tendency since Latin to extend from something that happens, an event, to a mishap, an undesirable event. And it comes from this Latin term, Middle English. We keep going on uh, with this. Then, then from the late 15, uh, 15th century, as uh, the operations of chance, meaning an unplanned child is attested by 1932. In other words, the baby was an accident. Well, no, I can assure you it wasn't an accident. I think this is where I, you know, how we view the word accident uh, is sort of interesting. And I'll get into that a little bit more, but the term being accident prone actually is from 1926 when that uh, term became somewhat commonplace. Good morning. Gosh. And they show it over and over. I love it. Okay. So, so four people are recovering from injuries after um, that collision between an Amtrak train and a semi-truck uh, stopped on the tracks. The local sheriff says the truck got stuck on the tracks because of its weight. The driver and his dogs were able to escape mm -hmm. before that crash. Four of the people on the train, though, were in fact injured. No lives thankfully lost, but what an incredibly... Uh, tragic scene there, and, and thankfully, though, everyone, everyone okay and able to exit that vehicle before the crash actually happened. Mm -hmm. So I got to ask everybody a question, and I'm just going to have to replay a short portion of it. Exactly. Why did that train blow its horn? At that point, I have no idea. Clearly, everyone already knew it was there. The train is coming. But that's not an accident. It, it's called an accident, but it is not an accident. 
the truck was crossing the tracks and got stuck. Somehow they couldn't stop the train. The train came, the train hit it. Um, it's not, it didn't happen by chance. It happened for a reason. And you could ask a billion questions. Should the driver have realized that, that that could happen? Should they have been going faster as they crossed the track? Should they have crossed the tracks at all based on their weight and the configuration of the vehicle? Should they have known that? You know, these are all, I mean, you, you can go through and, and, and dissect this and get all kinds of information. But this, yeah, okay, that's kind of an accident. So again, good morning, everyone. I, I wanted to make sure everybody had a good good breakfast. He appears quite, he or she, I can't tell, appears quite happy. So uh, very proud of themselves. Very good. Do not believe so, that the dragon warrior can stop him. The panda? Master, that panda is not the dragon warrior. He wasn't even meant to be here. It was an accident. There are no accidents. Yes, I know. You've said that already. Twice. Well, that was no accident either. Thrice. So, Master Uwe from, from, uh, from uh, uh, Kung Fu Panda, the movie. Uh, very good book. There are no accidents. The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disasters, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price by Jesse Singer. Um, interesting book that talks about... Um, the various industries involved in accidents, the legal industry, of course, how we use accidents to explain away bad behavior and shift responsibility, almost making people that do things that are wrong into victims versus actually being responsible for what actually occurred. And it's a, it's a very, it's an interesting read. I suggest that you uh, take a look at that book um, but there's also, of course, the insurance industry. I'm really not sure how to pronounce uh, Beamdike, uh, but it's an insurance company, as you could imagine. And safety is no accident. Well, if safety is no accident, then accidents are no accidents either. I mean, there's a uh, you, you sort of have to look at it that way. But let's get into this uh, first case. Perfusion accidents causes. Well, they can be manufacturing defects, they can be maintenance deficiency, they can be a setup error, they can be attention, they can be impairment, there can be communication failures, there can be communication errors, there can be errors in judgment, it can be an issue of training, knowledge, and basic competence. Um, you can have a team cohesion or lack of cohesion, which essentially generates an atmosphere where people are un, unwilling to speak up for fear of retribution or fear of ridicule or whatever it may be. And all of these things that I listed are by no means complete, but all of them have potential to result in an accident, if you will, occurring standard of care now we're going to get into a little bit more detailed or a little more specific about responsibilities duty uh, if you will of healthcare professionals in this case perfusionists 
The first thing to know is that standard of care is a legal term, not a medical term. I think most of us knew that. That means it is primarily lawyers, not doctors, who use it. In general, the only times that most doctors talk or think about the standard of care is when they are testifying in court on medical malpractice cases or when they are attending medical malpractice seminars. Different states define it in slightly different ways, but the medical standard of care usually means the degree of care and skill of the average healthcare provider who practices in the provider's specialty, taking into account the medical knowledge that is available in the field. So the standard of care is typically based on the hypothetical practices of a reasonably competent healthcare professional in the same or similar community. Basically, it comes down to you cannot judge one person's actions by the actions of an expert or someone who uh, has uh, 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 someone who has three years of experience to somebody that has 40 years of experience, depending on where that experience was gained. Um, so an academic center, 40 years or 30 years or 20 years is very different than a 20, 30 or 40 year experience in community-based medicine. Um, and what you see are a trauma center versus a non-trauma center. There's a lot of variables that influence what a reasonably competent healthcare professional should know. So case number one is a Utah woman. I've presented this case once before, uh, but I have some additional detailed information about this. A Utah woman bled to death into a garbage can during botched heart surgery, lawsuit says. So Donna Mae Brocknick, 62, died at St. Mark's Hospital in Mill Creek on July 11th, 2018, after undergoing surgery to remove a heart device. No one wants this headline. No one wants to be associated with this headline, but this headline comes directly out of uh, the, uh, a, a published periodical. So what are the facts of this case? Well, the surgery performed was the removal of an ASD closure device and then primary closure of the uh, ASD. The technique was femoral vein fem uh, and right IJ cannulation for drainage because they were gonna go through the right atrium, femoral arterial return, right, arter arter uh, right anterior thoracotomy approach, go on pump, snare the SVC and the IVC, do an atriotomy, remove the device, close the ASD, close the atrium, wean off of CPB, do an echo, confirm everything looks good, give protamine, decannulate, and close. Pretty straightforward, simple operation. However, the patient became very unstable. The diagnosis was severe hypovolemia. 
fluid resuscitation was started. The surgeon who had already left the room and was elsewhere was notified. The patient coded. CPR was initiated. Massive transfusions were started. The surgeon returned, opened the chest, and found the heart to be completely empty. The disassembled perfusion circuit, since they were closed and surgeon had left the room and they were decannulated, protamine, etc., was pulled, lifted, the circuit reservoir was lifted from the trash can to find it full of blood, overflowed with blood, and it was realized that the right IJ, right internal jugular line, was still in, unclamped, patent, and drained right back into the reservoir, down the venous line, into the trash can. Ultimately, this patient was declared uh, dead, and a lawsuit was filed, as you could well imagine. Well, what do you think happened next? Yeah, looking for a scapegoat. Who was the scapegoat? Exactly, it was the perfusionist. And when you look at this case, in, and, and at first blush, you, you wonder to yourself, how in the heck, heck could this happen? How? Um, you know, what is, what is our responsibility? You know, whose fault is this? This certainly isn't an accident. No one intended for it to happen, but it's still not an accident. And the question is, how do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? So how did this accident happen? Well, team cohesion. The perfusionist was not part of the team. In fact, uh, they were disliked. Uh, and there were, there were real, real issues. The perfusionist had less than a year of experience as a perfusionist. So when I talk about this chip shot case, yep, got it, know exactly what you're going to do. I'm basing that on having seen it before, having done many of not that particular case, but the same approach. I understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, but I have a lot of years of experience and I've seen it. So you have to ask yourself, was there a manufacturing defect? Remember our list, maintenance deficiency, setup error, attention, impairment, communication failure, communication error, judgment, training, knowledge, competence, team cohesion. Well, there was no team cohesion. So let me take my pen and I'm just gonna scratch that out. No team cohesion. Communication, the surgeon communicated with everyone but the perfusionist about this case because the perfusionist was disliked. And the surgeon in this particular case, who he liked or who he didn't like more, more accurately, was disliked by everyone else. They were a clique, okay? Surgeon had yelled at the perfusionist from the beginning because of a cannula mix-up, which the surgeon and the surgeon verbalized that the perfusionist did not understand the procedure. The surgeon left the OR once they came off pump, with the right IJ line still in the neck, but draped. The surgical field had begun breaking down. 
The perfusionist broke down the pump and placed disposables in a biohazard, biohazard waste container in front of everybody who was tearing it down. So clearly no one said we're still cannulated. Perfusionists did not fully understand the procedure, was relatively inexperienced, and lacked the confidence to truly be aware of the proverbial 30,000-foot view. So did we have a manufacturing defect? No. Was there a maintenance deficiency? No. Was there a setup error? No. Was there an attention issue? Eh, I'm going to put a check as a possible. Was there impairment? No. Was there a communication failure? Absolutely. Two checks. Communication error? Well, I think they both go hand in hand, but judgment? You know? Uh, you know, what, how does that saying go? Our good judgment experience experience judgment comes from experience and our best experience comes from poor judgment something like that i can't remember the phrase exactly but it's it, you get the point so you know there was probably some underlying lack of judgment training knowledge and competency you know she's relatively new less than a year should she have known um, i don't know i think that's a question mark i have to ask so there's a lot in here that makes you wonder what the heck if the surgeon says that they don't think the perfusionist understands the procedure well how about take the time to sit down and explain the procedure because that may have made all the difference in the world in this case there was no team cohesion the perfusionist was disliked and treated as an outcast. And that was wrong. So I don't know what to say about that. It's complicated. But those are the facts as I understand them. And by the way, all of these cases are public knowledge so that you know um, you can find these cases on your own um, online. And uh, they're very interesting because you can read everything. All of it is public information. Um, there is no question in my mind that it is so critically important that you have good communication, that everyone is on the same page with what we're doing, that everyone communicates with each other regardless of your personal feelings about anybody it doesn't make any difference it's our responsibility to be uh good communicators with uh with each other in the operating room in particular because that that is a difference between in many cases uh life or death it'll be interesting to see what ultimately happens with this particular case so that's case number one Case number two is a 60-year-old male going in for cabbage surgery. During the procedure, there was an open venous reservoir, so a hard shell, and it began developing a layer of foam on the top of it. Over time, this foam layer became larger and larger and larger and upon termination of CPB, after doing the case, uh, 
large amounts were seen in the aorta and the arterial cannula. In fact, the surgeon noted that the aorta was opacified with air. The patient condition, of course, worsened. The circuit ultimately was changed and CPB was reinitiated. And interestingly enough, no further air was seen in the circuit. So the foam layer, all of that just disappeared upon reinitiating bypass with a new circuit. The patient eventually was weaned from bypass. The patient never woke up and the patient was ultimately declared brain dead and, uh, and died. So what happened? So if we look at this, this is the reservoir here. And this is what was filling with foam. Now, this isn't the actual procedure pictures. I'm just showing you where the foam was. Let me see if I can make this. Uh, I can't make my pen work for some reason. Let me try doing that. Maybe that's what I had to do. No, I can't figure out how to make the pen work, uh, David. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying, but it doesn't work. That's all right. I mean, I don't want to do that. So, oh. um, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. So all of this was filled with foam. If we go down here, we see that we have the venous line in the patient coming out, going through a, a venous blood sensor. I imagine that's a blood gas analyzer. Uh, there's a regulating clamp, which I don't think most of us use. It's going into the venous reservoir. So this piece that you see here is this piece here, okay? Comes out of the venous reservoir. This has an air bubble detector sensor, usually not commonly placed there. Goes into the blood pump. In this case, it was a centrifugal pump. Goes out of the centrifugal pump into the heat exchanger oxygenator comes out as arterialized blood, goes through an arterial line filter, and voila, back to the patient above the clamp in the ascending aorta. You see this line here. This is an arterial line, an arterial filter purge line that goes back into the top of the venous reservoir. And this is going to be very important for uh, this discussion. Sorry about that. Okay as is this. It's important to note also that anything on this side is under negative pressure and anything on this side is positive pressure. So this blood pump that you see right here is the same as this blood pump is right here. So everything from here to here is negative and from here to here and beyond is under positive pressure. Very important to note that. So how did this happen? Was there a manufacturing defect? There was, but that's a possibility. There just happens to be in this case. Was there a maintenance deficiency? No, not really. Was there a setup error? Well, that depends on how you view what actually happened. 
Was there an attention problem? Quite possibly. Was there impairment? No. Was there a communication failure? No. Was there a communication error? No. Was there a lapse in judgment or good judgment? Possibly. Was there an issue with training, knowledge, and competence? Absolutely not. Was there team cohesion? Yes. So the obvious questions are, was this an experienced perfusionist? And I've already answered that. Yes, it was a very experienced perfusionist. Was there an obvious manufacturing defect? No, not obvious, but there was a manufacturing defect. So right here, when they sent uh, this in for a review from the manufacturer, as I said before, this area is negative. This area is positive. So the blood comes in this way, goes out this way. Right here, there was a very, very small micro crack in the housing of the pump in that area. See where I'm going with this, I'm assuming. As I'm looking at this case, there's a glaring omission in the lawsuit. So the, I'm gonna go back to this picture here. In the lawsuit, the perfusionist is sued, the hospital is sued, the surgeon is sued, anesthesia is sued, the manufacturer of the disposables are sued, but the heart-lung machine manufacturer is not sued. And I'm like, how could that possibly be? Because the reason I say that is, I showed you this right here, air bubble detector sensor. And there should be another one right here, air bubble detector sensor. Now, this says optional position. This says that it should be there. It's not optional. You know, there's a, a, a debate of where it should be, but it needs to be somewhere. Either it needs to be here, or it needs to be here, or it needs to be here, or it needs to be here. There's usually only one on any heart-lung machine, but it needs to be somewhere in there. or there for a reason, right? We went through all of this. We went through this. I showed you the crack. Remember, it's right there. Remember, this is the negative side. Negative pressure. This is positive pressure. Is that a spell positive or just one S? I have no idea. So there's this glaring omission. How could this be that the manufacturer of the heart-lung machine isn't being sued? How did the air emboli alarm not go off? Well, there are some reasons why it might not. You know, they are generally set for different size bubbles. 
And what I figured out had occurred here, and I think everybody agrees this is what occurred, is that micro crack, if you look at this diagram here, right here, that micro crack would be right here where I made that red mark. That under negative pressure sucked a constant stream of bubbles came out here, went into the oxygenator, overwhelmed the oxygenator, came out this way into the arterial line filter, was purged back to the top of the oxygenator and filled this full of foam. That's how this area here became full of foam and why when they went back on bypass, it wasn't there. Again, micro crack right here, sucks air and trains air, small bubbles, goes this way into the oxygenator, comes out of the oxygenator, arterialized. Here you see this is an air bubble sensor right here. This is a flow probe, air bubble sensor right there. Now, if the bubbles are small enough, this might not pick it up, possibly. But if they're, you know, as much air as we're talking about, I'm surprised it didn't go off or it wasn't seen in the arterial line filter with the purge. We have ours as an integrated arterial line filter, so it's a little different design, but does the same exact thing. And there's a purge line off the top of that, which you can see, I'll just circle it right here, this line here. Was it on? Because if it's not on, it's not gonna work. There are no accidents. Master Ugwe. There's mistakes, there's misfeasance, there's malfeasance, there's negligence, there's a standard of care, there's a duty, there's harm, there's loss, and sometimes these things are inconsequential, and other times they're very consequential. And I'll just tell you, um, as we wrap this session up, that the reason that the heart-lung machine manufacturer was not sued in this case was because the perfusionist did not believe in air bubble detectors and chose not to use one. In fact, has not used one in their professional career. And this is a good guy, good perfusionist, competent. But is that misfeasant? Is it malfeasant? Is it negligent? Does it meet a standard of care that a, an average competent perfusionist would follow? Did he fail in his duty? Did he cause harm and a loss? Was this inconsequential? Clearly not. Sometimes it is. Sometimes things happen and you get away with it. You know, and you go like, huh, oh, by the grace of God, go we. You know, and thankfully for the patient, thankfully for you, thankfully for your care, for your career. You know, as I said, there are 
there are profusion incidents. Um, I guess you can call them what you want. They're not accidents. Nothing happens by accident. And there are near misses. There are things that just happen, um, like an aortic, like a dissection. Um, they had a flap. It wasn't, you know, noted. Uh, no one had done a CTA, and for some reason, this flap dissected and and uh, and and ended up. You had a problem. Uh, a lot of these things. There's a lot of things that happen. That happen through no fault, through no breach of standard of care, through no failure to provide the duty uh, that we have to uh, do no harm, following every possible thing we know. And still things, bad things can happen. But at the end of the day, it happened for a reason. And because of our, you know, very, very litigious society, um, we are disinclined to really openly discuss serious issues that have occurred to us personally in an operating room that, you know, either did or didn't result in patient harm. Um, you go back to the literature and there's really not an abundance of perfusion accident um, uh, data out there uh, because that's not generally something that we want to publish, discuss, or deal with. But at the end of the day, is it not more in the public interest that we be able to do this so that we can create systems or technology uh, or, uh, uh, or, or, or alerts to people to be aware of this could happen so that others learn from your misfortune, if you will, uh, having been the person that had that happen to. But very much our society is not designed for that because you'll be sued and uh, you will be sued and you will be ruined. Now, you know, I think the first case that I discussed, um, that very young perfusionist, of course, you know, pretty much in the same uh, way that David Wood described, that was the last case that they ever did. Was it her fault? Well, yes, it was. Was it solely her fault? No, it wasn't. There's a whole bunch of people that are responsible for what happened in that case in Utah. In this other case that I discussed, um, I can see no other any, I can't see any other reason, you know, had they used, first of all, had that micro crack occur. And I'll tell you what this has caused me to do. What I do now 
because I've seen it in our sim lab that we have here. So I know, yeah, you're la my, my, my partner in crime back there is laughing because they know it's true. We were getting air everywhere in our ECMO simulator circuit and couldn't figure it out. And when we clamped the inlet of the centrifugal pump, which we had used over and over and over and over and over, the tubing was weak and old and tired and so forth. Yeah, exactly, thank you. Um, that's perfect, beautiful, thank you. Um, it's a mess over there right now. I don't want people to see the mess. We're gonna clean that up um, and set it back up again. But when we clamped it, massive amounts of just a stream of air and this is in water so blood's going to act very differently um and so it was very interesting to see so if i do a case now i'm concerned enough that i'm clamping the inlet of the centrifugal pump and i'm ramping it up to see if i am entraining air through that area because that crack could have occurred in a whole variety of ways. Could have been dropped and cracked it. It was a micro crack. It was, it was not a manufacturing defect. That has been established. Could have occurred with the pump being set up and inadvertently pushing a cart through. It could have been housekeeping, could have been nurses, could have been biomed, could have been anybody bump a cart into it hard enough to cause that crack, maybe crack the connector as it moved over. That's very possible as well. And then the next question is, would the air bubble detector have picked it up? Because again, these were teeny little streams of bubbles, but the more resistance you have, negative pressure to, to pulling, the higher your flow, the more that air is going to stream. May not have picked it up, but if you didn't hook it up, you don't know. And that's, that's it. Had that been hooked up, it's very possible to have, you know, but then the question is, where's all this foam coming from? Well, how do you do a whole case? and not think to yourself, my reservoir is filling up with foam. How do you not see it coming through your, the top of your arterialine filter? So was the attention being paid? Do we become complacent? You know, I mean, there's just so many questions associated with that second case. The first case is horrifying. I can't imagine being that perfusionist. I can't even imagine having experience something like that. It's gut-wrenching. And I imagine the second one is too. You know, you've got one person who had this tragic event and everyone pointed their finger at her. Everyone, the scapegoat. Not the case in the second. The second uh, uh, situation was a very well-liked, very experienced person um, and unfortunate. I don't know if they're still practicing or not, to be honest with you. I know the first person is not practicing. The young lady is not practicing. So less than a year as a perfusionist, and that's the end of their career um, over something like that. Um, you know, ultimately, we take the clamps off. We, we, we're the ones, right? A more experienced person, however, would have been, well, where's that IJ cannula? Are you sure you took that out? But if you're afraid to talk, 
but you can't be afraid to talk. So, so many lessons here that we can learn from these experiences about what is our responsibility. I don't care if you like me or not, you have a line left in that neck and we need to get that out. And why is the surgeon leaving? Why are you leaving? You're leaving that IJ line in? The protamine's been given. Who would do that? It was an oversight. And it could have been just the, 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 the mood of the room because this was who the perfusionist was that day. It's really hard for me to say. Um, would I have noticed it? I'd like to think so, but I'm not 100% sure that I would have. So anyway, hopefully, you know, I've uh, brought up some provocative thoughts. I've brought up a couple of provocative cases. And, uh, you know, we can all maybe continue this discussion with, is there a way for perfusionists to report incidents that occur anonymously without having to fear uh, being, you know, suffering the wrath um, and learn from whatever mishaps occur. And then on the other hand, if things do occur, is that really fair if there's a, a victim? Because it's not an accident. There's somebody that got harmed. Accidents aren't, har people don't get harmed. If you think about it like the baby, uh, in the morning. So what's our responsibility to let the family members or the patients know what happened? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? But if you do, it could be the end of your career. You could be ruined uh, professionally and financially. And is that right? It's a, it's a complex system, a complex problem. I really don't have good answers. I just have a lot of questions about it. And hopefully there's somebody out there that's watching this that will email me and say, I wanna be part of this discussion and let's listen to your input and your perspective as many people as would like to so we can maybe all learn from this and figure out what we're gonna do in the future. Okay, we have, we're gonna start back again uh, in 10 minutes. We're gonna take a quick 10 minute break. And I do. We're going to take a quick five minute break by mistake. Thank you. Five minute break. And we're going to come back with a video, a couple of slides, and then a discussion with Justin Kendrick, uh, senior vice president and CEO, Memorial Hermann, the Woodlands Hospital, and some other places. You'll get an opportunity to meet him and listen to his perspective, his thoughts on the uh, two uh, most pressing challenges that he experienced through the COVID pandemic in his role as a hospital administrator. I think it's going to be very enlightening and elucidating. Thank you. I'll see you in five minutes.